Thank you for listening to Pastor Sean's Bible Study Teaching Podcast from Emmanuel Baptist Church in Sterling, Colorado. This lesson was recorded during our Wednesday night adult seminars. For more information on Emmanuel Baptist Church, please visit our website at www.ebc-online.org. Now here's Pastor Sean. Tonight we're talking about patience. And I want to start by saying this is the one that I struggle with the most. So I'm going to lay my cards on the table and just tell you that I struggle with patience. But have you ever had to wait a really long time and you just got frustrated? So like how many of you ever had to get like call somebody like a bank or um, a doctor or insurance and you just want to talk to a human and you're on hold and, and like my phone keeps a track of how long you're on there. Like 45 minutes later you're like and you still have that dumb elevator music that's like where do they who even wants to listen to this type of music and then so that's frustrating. Um, when I was in Colorado Springs the slowest place you'd ever want to go is the Sonic drive through Sometimes if you go to Sonic, it would take like 30 minutes to get through the drive-thru. And by then, it's like, why am I paying all this money and waiting 45 minutes for a greasy hamburger? Um, so we live in a world that's, I call it a microwave magic world. Um, you guys, I don't know if you grew up with microwave magic. Like you just, you stick it in the microwave and what do we expect? We expect things to be instantly given to us. We don't want to wait in line. We don't want to wait to talk on the telephone. We don't want to have to wait at any time. So I went to um, touringplans.com, the website, and they compiled data on the longest time waiting in a line at a ride at Disney World. Okay, so I've been to Disney World and Disneyland, so they calculated the longest wait time. Um, and so the longest verified wait time, this is not anecdotal where people just kind of said that. The longest verified wait time was, this was on December 30th, 2015. This was for the rock and roll coaster ride that featured the music of Aerosmith. It was 154 minutes. Now, I'm sure the ride was probably 30 seconds. That's a long time to wait. How many of you have ever hiked a 14er? Do you know what a 14 is? Friends, sorry. For those of you watching on Facebook that aren't from Colorado, a 14er is a mountain that's 14,000 feet high that we have all over Colorado. So Don and I like to hike. So about six or seven years ago, uh, we hiked Gray's Peak. And so we started out and we were all excited. And then you start getting closer to the ridge line and, and you start getting closer and closer and then you get totally exhausted. And what was kind of frustrating was there was this guy that ran up it and down it twice. He, he lapped us twice. Like we were, I'm like, didn't that guy go up and come back? To, and he's like, and like, like, he's like, yeah, I run this all the time. And I'm like, oh my goodness. And so, you know, it would be nice to hike a fort. Here's the way to hike a 14er. Rent a helicopter and let them drop you in and you get to the top and I made it. It's a mountaintop experience. I made it to the top of the mountain. Um, but that's not the way the Christian life works, is it? Uh, the Christian life is this mountain climb where sometimes, you know, it's steep and then there's, you know, valleys. But then, you know, ultimately, it's this long journey that takes a long time. And so patience is, is really the definer of the Christian life. The Christian life is a life of patience. 
Now, I'm going to ask somebody to go close the doors back there because I see the youth in the foyer and it's going to get loud here real quick. So would one of you guys be willing to go? That's what makes me nervous when I preach. It's always been made me nervous because on Sunday morning, sometimes that back door is open and I see people walk back and forth. I'm like, I want the doors closed so you guys can stay in here and you can't escape. No, but I, it's going to get loud because the youth are, I see the youth out there getting ready to play a game. I need more patience. So I'm preaching to myself tonight. So patience. So let's, we're doing the fruit of the Spirit. We've looked at love. We've looked at joy. We've looked at peace. Um, So let's go to Galatians 5, verse 22. And again, we're going to kind of be all over the map tonight, Old and New Testament. And actually, we're going to, I thought we'd double up tonight on two, but actually I think that I'm able to talk about patience for the whole time tonight. <laughs> Hopefully you'll have the patience to, to deal with that. Here we go. Galatians 5.22. The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. Patience. And you know what I need to do real quick? I forgot to get my handy-dandy remote control. So... I'm going to, Brent, do you know where it is? It's in the top drawer of the file cabinet right back there where all of the um, microphones and stuff are. It's a silver, it's it's like a little remote control clicker. It's on your sheet, but I want to put it up on the screen for you guys to see. So first question, what does this word patience, what does the word mean? The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace. What, What does the Greek word mean? Are you having trouble finding it, Brent? Uh, let's make sure that's it. Yeah, that's it. What? Oh, yeah, we forgot to pray. (laughs) (laughs) Troy's like, we need to pray. I, like, just kind of started and never prayed and did anything. We just kind of, let's stop and pray. I'm going to test your patience tonight. I can tell you that much. It's getting all kind of crazy. All right, let's pray. Thanks, Troy, for (laughs) reminding me. Father, thank you for this time tonight that we can gather. And, and Lord, we, we do need to pause and thank you for your grace in our lives. And Lord, as we, as we look at patience tonight, it is a difficult thing I know for a lot of us. For me, it is. Um, help us to understand it. Help us to know how patient you are with us. And Lord, just bless our time together as we seek to glorify you in looking at your word. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. Now we'll get back to our scheduled events. What does the word patience mean? Okay, what, what is this Greek word? Okay, come on now. Okay. So I won't give you the actual, the Greek term is makrothymia, but you're not going to remember that. Um, but the word patience does mean, okay, we're having issues here. Oh, there we go. So it really means a state of emotional calm in the face of provocation or misfortune without complaint or irritation. That's, that's a lexicon definition there. What I want us to look at tonight as far as patience, I want to look at it in three different ways. Okay, God's patience towards us. Okay, Our patience towards other people. And our patience in circumstances. Okay, because you can have, all right, so there's two types of ways you can have patience. You can be patient with other people, 
which is really what the word here means. And you need to learn patience in situations. Like talking on the phone or waiting in line. And then interpersonal relationships. But it all flows from God's patience for us. So the question is, you know, how, do you, how do you relate to others who try your patience? How do you interact or how do you respond when situations try your patience? Do you retaliate? Do you get frustrated? Uh, do, you, do you exemplify patience? And since this is a fruit of the Spirit, like we're looking at every week, patience is not something you can produce in your own heart, in your own life. The Holy Spirit's got to give it to you. You can't muster up patience because it's, it's countercultural, it's counterintuitive. It goes against the grain for us to be patient because we're sinners. So it has to be Holy Spirit produced. Okay? So before we understand, um, I'm just going to, there we go. I'm not sure why it's doing that. Okay. Before we understand how we must pack, practice patience ourselves, I want to start with how God is patient towards us. It's amazing when you especially look at the Old Testament, how God was patient with the Old Testament Israelites. So God's patience in the Old Testament. And you know what, guys? I'm not sure if this clicker is going to work. Do you guys need a screen tonight, or can you just look on your sheet? Are you guys okay? Cindy, I mean, if you want to advance it, you can. I just don't want to have to keep saying, next slide, next slide. But this may be out of batteries. But All right, so let's, um, I'm going to recap some of the events in Exodus. So really, um, turn to Exodus 32. And I'm just going to give a brief overview here because I preached Exodus for, two, for a year and a half. And we kind of finished this back up in January, in February, before covid and you, you may remember that, you may not, but I'm not going to go into a lot of detail. But I, I do want to share with you, the, the book of Exodus is very interesting. So God rescues the people, the Israelites, out of slavery. He delivers them through the Red Sea. He gives them manna every day from heaven to feed them. He gives them quail. He gives them water gushing out of a rock. He defeats the enemies. God takes care of over two million Israelites in the wilderness. And all of a sudden, Moses goes up on the mountain to spend time with God. And he's up there a little bit too long. And what happens? In Exodus 32, the people do the most gross act of idolatry up to this point in the Bible they build the golden calf, and they worship and bow down to an image. And Moses comes down, and he's burning with anger, and he throws the Ten Commandments down. And if you remember, what does God want to do with the Israelites because of their sin? It said God burned with anger, and he wanted to destroy the Israelites. And not that Moses talked him out of it, but Moses is kind of the intermediary. He's kind of the Christ figure between God's wrath and a sinful people. And Moses says, you can't destroy the Israelites because they're your chosen people. And if you do that, the nations around are going to look and say that you're not that much of a sovereign God. And so Moses intercedes 
And there's punishment for the Israelites. They have to drink. They, they grind up the golden calf into dust. They put it in the water supply, and they have to drink that. And then Moses sends the Levites in the camp and kills some people. So some people do die, probably the instigators of the golden calf episode. And so right after the worst perpetration of idolatry in the Bible up to this point, the golden calf, and God's about ready to destroy them, God reveals himself to Moses in the cleft of the rock. Remember, Moses says, I want to see your full glory. And God says, you can't handle my full glory, so I'm going to put you in the cleft of the rock. But then I'm going to pass by, and you'll see my backside glory. But God says, I'm going to reveal to you, Moses, who I am. So let's go to Exodus chapter 34. And I want to pick up in verse 5. And what I'm about to read, this is the first time it shows up in the Bible, but this is the John 3.16 of the Old Testament. This is where God makes a pronouncement on his character, and it's repeated all throughout the Old Testament. So let's pick up in Exodus 34, verse 5. The Lord descended in the cloud and stood with him there and proclaimed the name of the Lord. The Lord passed before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, and here's what we're going to focus on tonight, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. The Lord is slow to anger. Now, in the original Hebrew the imagery here is the Lord is slow and snorting his nose like a horse that's mad. The Lord is slow to anger. What is patience? Slow to get angry with others that disappoint you, with others that sin against you. What did the nation of Israel deserve? To be destroyed. God have every right to destroy them. He did not. He was slow to anger. So, God does not execute immediate justice or discipline, but shows great restraint because he has a high threshold of tolerance for our disobedience. So let me ask you a question. Aren't you thankful that God is slow to anger? What's the opposite of that? If God were quick to be angry, every single one of us would be dead. Okay, so this expression of God's mercy and God's grace and God's slowness to anger shows up all throughout the Old Testament. So Nehemiah 9, 17 through 19. Nehemiah recounts, and he's, he, this is actually a prayer, but he's talking about that, that nation, that those people that built, that built the golden calf. They refused to obey and were not mindful of the wonders that you performed among them, but they stiffened their neck and appointed a leader to return to slavery in Egypt. But you're a God ready to forgive gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and did not forsake them. Even when they made for themselves a golden calf and said, this is your God who brought you up out of Egypt and had committed great blasphemies. You and your great mercies did not forsake them in the wilderness. The pillar of cloud to lead them in the way did not depart from them day by day or the pillar of fire by night to light for them the way by which they should go. Nehemiah saying, God, you are so gracious and slow to anger because Israel was so rebellious and you should have destroyed them, but you didn't because you're slow to anger. You're patient. You're long-suffering, I think is what the King James says. You're, you're able to suffer for a long period of time. Psalm 86, 15. 
But you, O Lord, are merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. He's repeated all throughout the Old Testament. Joel 2, 12 through 13, yet even now, declares the Lord, return to me with all your heart, with fasting, with weeping, with mourning, and rend your heart, not your garments. Return to the Lord your God, for he's gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, and he relents over disaster. Okay, remember the story of Jonah? What happened? What happened? Jonah goes into Nineveh, this pagan city, and he, he preaches a sermon that has eight words in the Hebrew language. Basically, I'm paraphrasing it. He says, turn or burn. Okay, he says, repent or God's going to rain down fire. And what happens to the people of Nineveh? They repent. And what, remember what Joseph does? He gets mad. Because what did Joseph want to do? I mean, Jonah wanted to do. Jonah wanted to go up on the hill, look down, and see Sodom and Gomorrah part two. He wanted to see God rain down fire on the Ninevites. So he got mad that the Lord didn't punish them. And he gets so mad that he gets in God's face and he says, that's just like you, God, to be forgiving. How dare you forgive them? Look at Jonah 4.2. He prayed to the Lord and said, oh, Lord, is this not what I said when I was yet in my country? That's why I made haste to flee to Tarshish, for I knew that you're a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. Jonah's mad that God didn't destroy him. And he says, I'm mad, God, that you're slow to anger because they deserve to be destroyed. And what does God say back to Jonah in a kind of a way? Well, you kind of deserve to be destroyed too, Jonah, and I've shown you mercy. I've shown the Israelites mercy. Micah 7, 18 and 19. Who is a God like you, pardoning our iniquities, passing over our transgressions for the remnant of his inheritance? He does not retain his anger forever because he delights in steadfast love. He will again have compassion on us. He will tread our iniquities underfoot. You will cast all our sin into the depths of the sea. Okay. Now, oftentimes in the Old Testament, Israel is portrayed as the wife of God who's the husband. And sometimes God portrays Israel as a, and pardon the French here, but this is the way the ESV translates, a whoring, a wife that, that, that's a whore, that whoredom, a harlot, a, a wife that goes, steps out on her husband and commits adultery. And it's a metaphor for spiritual adultery, that the nation of Israel has committed spiritual adultery against God. And what, what, is, what, what does a husband have a right to do if a wife commits adultery, biblically? I mean, technically, you'd think that if a, if a wife keeps continuing to be unfaithful, unfaithful, the husband says, okay, I'm done. I'm done. I'm out of here. And so in the Old Testament, Israel keeps committing spiritual adultery, spiritual adultery, spiritual adultery. And what does God say? Does God say, I'm done? No. Hosea 11, 1 through 4. When Israel was a child, I loved him. And out of Egypt, I called my son. The more they were called, the more they went away. They kept sacrificing to the Baals, that's, that's a false god, and burning offerings to idols. Yet it was I who taught Ephraim to walk. I took them up by their arms, but they did not know that I healed them. I led them with cords of kindness, with bands of love. I became to them as one who eases a yoke on their jaws. I bent down and fed them. It's almost like this is an imagery of a, of a kid that God raises that, like a wayward child. And they just keep rebelling and rebelling, and God says, listen, I'm going to bring you back. I'm going to forgive you. I've got a high threshold of patience for my people. Jeremiah 3, 19 through 20. I said, how I would set you among my sons and give you a pleasant land, a heritage most beautiful of all nations. 
And I thought you would call me my father and would not turn from following me. Surely as a treacherous wife leaves her husband, so you've been treacherous to me, O house of Israel, declares the Lord. But God kept his covenant with them. And so these prophets kept going to Israel, preaching the patience of God. That's why James 5.10 says this, As an example of suffering and patience, brothers, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. Jeremiah and Hosea, the prophets we've been looking at. Okay, so that's Old Testament. What does the New Testament teach about the patience of God? Romans 2.4. Do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? Okay, let's stop and talk about this for a moment. When God doesn't execute immediate discipline or judgment, is that an excuse for you to continue to sin because you got away with it? Or is his kindness and patience meant to lead you to repentance and not to do it again? So God's patience is an act of grace to lead us to repentance. Now, the next passage of Scripture is pretty controversial, and I'm not going to go into the whole teaching on it, but you just need to know Romans 9, 21 through 23. Has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honorable use and one for dishonorable use? What if God, desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy, which he's prepared beforehand for glory? Okay. <laughs> without getting into a, to the weeds here. Does God, like if a sinner sins today, does God immediately mete out justice and judgment on that sinner today? Or will a person live their whole life and never have to deal with any consequences of their sin? Do you know people that have lived their entire life in a rebellion to God and died and never got any type of punishment? Okay. Does that mean that there's not going to be a punishment one day? God is patient on earth with people that continue to rebel and to rebel and to rebel. If a person does not turn to Christ in repentance, but continues to rebel and they die in their sins, even though they didn't get any judgment here on earth because God was patient with them, what are they going to get on the final day of judgment? They're going to get his wrath. So in a sense, yes, God's patient, but God's patience does have somewhat of a limit on the final day. It's not like everybody gets a pass on the final day. So God doesn't always execute immediate judgment. So here's the point. God's patience in not executing immediate judgment on sinners is an act of mercy and grace that should lead people to repentance. That's the whole point. When God's patient, when God's merciful, when you, when you get away with it, when there's no punishment... It's not an excuse for you to continue doing it. It's to lead you to repentance. But for those who never repent and die in their sins, they will experience God's justice on the final day. Okay, trivia question. How long did it take Noah to build the ark? Remember how many years it took him to build, to build a ship? 120 years. 120 years. Okay, now, 
Think about, okay, some of you are like, what? So think about living on the earth at the time of Noah. What has the earth never seen yet? A flood, a rain. They've probably never seen a boat. What's Noah out there doing? He's building a boat. People are walking by every day like, what are you doing, Noah? I'm building a boat. Well, why are you building a boat? Because God's going to flood the earth. Oh, that's cool. How long does Noah do that? Every day he's out there. Peter says Noah was a preacher of righteousness. Now, we don't know how Noah preached, but I'm assuming every day he's out there building a boat. People come by, what are you doing, Noah? I'm building a boat. What's a boat? What's a big floaty thing? Well, why do we need it? Because God's going to flood the earth. Oh, that's interesting. How long did God give people a chance before he flooded the earth? From when Noah started building the ark until the flood came. God gave them how long? 120 years to look at that boat and say, maybe there's something going on here. <laughs> maybe I should repent. Maybe, God, maybe Noah is right. What do we find out? Let's read Second or First Peter 3.20. Because they formerly did not obey when God's patience waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through the water. We don't know how many people lived on the earth during Noah's time, but how many people were saved? Eight people, his family. And what does that Bible verse say there? God's patience. God could have said, Noah, we're going to build this ark in a day and supernaturally built it and the flood came the next day. But God gave that generation 120 years to every day walk by that boat and say, what are you doing, Noah? I'm building an ark. What's an ark? It's a big boat. Why are you building it? Because God's going to flood the earth because of your sin. 120 years, God was patient. One thing that you need to understand. Very, you think about God executing immediate, immediate judgment. In the Old Testament, when you actually read the Old Testament, it's amazing how many times God gives people a chance to repent before he actually execute justice. He's actually patient. Even with Sodom and Gomorrah, there was that you know, dialogue he had with Abraham to find righteous people. And then we, we find out this in 2 Peter 3, 9. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise as some count slowness, but is patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. You ever wonder why Jesus hasn't come back yet? You can say, well, it's not his time to come back yet. Well, that's true. Where's my water? Oh. Or you could say, in God's perfect timetable, he's being patient until all those that are supposed to be saved get saved. What if Jesus came back in 1938? Were you born yet, Jerry? I think you're the oldest one here. What if Jesus came back in 1938? Would any of us be saved? So the fact that Jesus has not come back shows, yeah, God's sovereign, and God know, Jesus knows when, when that time is coming, but in God's plan, he's being patient. All right, so here's the bottom line. God was patient with rebellious Israel and put up with their idolatry and wickedness. For a long time. God is still patient with rebellious sinners 
and puts up with all of our idolatry and wickedness. The patience is not being immediately punished, is not an excuse to continue in sin, but instead serves as a wake-up call for us to repent and be thankful for God's patience towards us. God is slow to anger. He's patient. Now, what I want to do now is look at some examples of some Old Testament people that demonstrated patience. Now, this doesn't flat out tell us that they experienced patience, but we have to kind of read between the lines. Um, So let's think about Joseph. Do you guys remember the story of Joseph? Okay, Joseph was seven. All right, so let's do the math here. He was 17 years old when his brothers betrayed him. What did they do? They threw him in a cistern and sold him into slavery. Okay, so he's 17. Okay, then what happens the second time? He's, he's an older guy now. He, he's, he's a slave in Potiphar's house. Potiphar's wife comes and does what? Propositions him over and over again. Joseph says no, and then basically she accuses him of, of rape. Her husband comes home, and Joseph unjustly gets put in prison. How many years is he sent to prison? He's sent to prison for 11 years. What's 17 plus 11? It's what? 28? Is it 28? Okay. So he's 28 years old. Okay. Now, as he's 28 in prison, so he's been in prison for 11 years, he has a dream about, with this cupbearer. And basically, he interprets the dream, and, he, and, and there's this issue with the baker and the cupbearer. And basically, the, the baker gets killed because he's wicked, and the cupbearer gets saved because Joseph has this dream. And Genesis 40, 21 through 23 says this, talking about Pharaoh. He restored the chief cupbearer to his position, and he placed the cup in Pharaoh's hand, but he hanged the chief baker as Joseph had interpreted him. And listen to verse 23. Yet the chief cupbearer did not remember Joseph, but forgot him. So what technically should have happened? Joseph's been in prison. Okay, Joseph's been betrayed by his brothers at age 17. He's been betrayed by a woman that accused him of rape. He's been in jail for 11 years. He finally gets his big break, right? I I, I did the right thing with the dream. And what happens to the guy that he helps? Forgets about him. Okay? How many more years does Joseph have to spend in prison? Just pick up the next verse. Genesis 41.1. After two whole years, Pharaoh dreamed that he was standing by the Nile, and the story continues. Small little incidental bit of information there. How many years was Joseph in prison? Thirteen years. From age 17 to age 30, when he's 28, he thinks he's got his big break and he has to wait two whole more years. That's patience. Now, the Bible doesn't come out and say Joseph had great patience, but if you read the rest of the story, Joseph emerges as an honorable man who does the will of the Lord. And you would think spending 13 years in prison trusting the Lord, that's going to try your patience, especially when you think you're getting out and you have to spend two more years. Okay, another trivia question. How many years were the Israelites in slavery after Joseph died, before Moses came and delivered them? How many years were they in slavery? Cindy's back there. 400 years. Our nation's not even that old yet. 
400 years. Okay, so Acts 7, 6, Stephen's preaching the sermon before he's being stoned and he's recounting Israel's history. God spoke to this effect that his offspring would be sojourners in a land belonging to others who would enslave them and afflict them for 400 years. How long did Israel have to wait until Moses came to deliver them? Now, here's a question you've got to ask. And I don't have the answer to it, but you've got to ask it when you read it. Why did God make Joseph wait that long? God could have intervened and gotten him out, couldn't he? Okay. Why did God make Israel wait 400 years? God could have done it sooner, couldn't he have? Now, the Bible doesn't often answer the why. The answer is, here's the, here's the best answer I have. It's God's perfect timing. If you're an Israelite, what are you thinking? You're about 400 years too late. God, I've been waiting. All right, let's look at another person that you may not be that familiar with. That's Elijah, Elijah the prophet. So let's turn to 1 Kings 19. One of the fun things about doing the fruit of the Spirit is we've been able to go back to the Old Testament and see some stories of people that exemplified some of this fruit of the Spirit in kind of an Old Testament context. Okay, Elijah, chapter 18, 1 Kings chapter 18. I've got to figure out a better place to put my cup here, or my, my water. So in 1 Kings chapter 18, you may remember, this is kind of the famous story of Elijah. They're at Mount Carmel, and the prophets of Baal, the false god, are there, and Elijah, the one man's there, and there's the showdown of which god can bring fire down on the mountain and destroy the altar. And Elijah says, I'll make it even easier for you. I'll, I'll, di I'll dig a trench and put some water, and I'll douse the wood with water. And we'll see which God's the one that's going to behave in the right way and, and, bring the, and bring the fire. So Elijah's in there and like, okay, prophets of Baal, let's see if your God can do it. And so they're running around chanting and cutting themselves and yelling and screaming and carrying on. And Elijah says, I'm paraphrasing, but Elijah says, your God must be up there using the restroom because he's not listening. He, he's, he's gone to relieve himself. Where's your God? And so basically, Elijah says, step aside, prophets of Baal. The true God of Israel is going to act now. And what does the God of Israel do? He rains down fire and destroys everything. And then Elijah goes and kills all these prophets. Now, Ahab is the king. And you may have heard of Ahab's wife, Jezebel. Jezebel's a wicked woman. She wants to kill Elijah. So she gets in hot pursuit of Elijah. So let's, let's pick up in chapter 19, okay? 1 Kings chapter 19. Ahab told Jezebel all that Elijah had done and how he had killed all the prophets with the sword. Then Jezebel sent a messenger to Elijah saying, So may the gods do to me and more also if I do not make your life as the life of one of them by this time tomorrow. In other words, you're dead tomorrow. Then he was afraid. And he rose and ran for his life and came to Beersheba, which belongs to Judah and his servants there. But he himself went a day's journey into the wilderness and came and sat down under a broom tree. And he asked that he might die, saying, it is enough now, O Lord, take my life, for I am no better than my father's. And he lay down and slept under a broom tree. Okay, what's he saying to God? Now, let me just address something that's very serious here. There are a few cases in the Bible where biblical characters contemplated suicide. What is, he, what is Elijah saying? God, take my life right now. I want to die right here and right now. 
It'd be better if I was just dead because she's coming after me. She's going to kill me. I want to lay down here and God just strike me dead. And behold, an angel touched him and said to him, Arise and eat. And he looked, and behold, there was at his head a cake baked on hot stones and a jar of water. And he ate and drank and lay down again. And the angel of the Lord came again a second time and touched him and said, Arise and eat, for the journey is too great for you. And he arose and ate and drank and went in the strength of the food for 40 days and 40 nights to Horeb, the mount of God. Okay, who else spent 40 days and 40 nights on top of Mount Horeb, Mount Sinai? Moses. Okay, after 40 days is when God finally speaks to Elijah and says, Elijah, it's going to be okay. There's a bunch of people over here who have not bowed down to Baal. You're not the only one. God's reserved a remnant. I've got your back. Okay, but here's the point. How long did Elijah have to wait before God showed up? 40 days. Now, God sent an angel to take care of him in the meantime, but if you're suicidal and you're depressed and you're running for your life, do you want to wait 40 days for God to give you an answer? What do you want? God, I want the answer yesterday. Question, why did God make Elijah wait 40 days and 40 nights? Answer, I don't know. (laughs) The point is, it's God's perfect timing. The point is this. And we'll get to this in a little bit. God does not operate on our timetable. He operates on his timetable. And when he doesn't act the way we want him to act, it tries our patience even with God. Okay? So, you've got Joseph in prison. You've got Israel waiting 400 years. You've got Elisha. They had to wait 40 days. Now, I'm going to show a, a bad example a negative example of impatience. So let's turn to 1 Samuel. So go back a few books. Go to 1 Samuel 13. 1 Samuel 13. Who was the first king of Israel? Another trivia question. Saul, King Saul. Okay. Who was the arch enemy of Israel during Saul's day? It was the Philistines. The Philistines were bigger and badder. They had more chariots. They had more people. Um, And so let's pick up in chapter 13. Now, there's another character in the story, Samuel. Who's Samuel? Samuel's the prophet slash priest who is the spiritual leader of Israel at the time. And he's the one that's kind of the counselor to to Saul in matters of spiritual things. And, And for some reason... Samuel's gone away for a while. Samuel's not there. Okay, so let's go to chapter 13 of 1 Samuel. Is everybody there? Okay, let's just pick up in verse 1. Saul lived for one year and then became king, and when he had reigned for two years over Israel, Saul chose 3,000 men of Israel, 2,000 were with Saul and Michmash in the hill country of Bethel, and 1,000 were with Jonathan and Gibeah of Benjamin. The rest of the people he sent home, every man to his tent. Jonathan defeated the garrison of the Philistines that it was Geba, and the Philistines heard of it. And Saul blew the trumpet throughout all the land, saying, Let the Hebrews hear. And all Israel heard it and said that Saul had defeated the garrison of the Philistines, and also that Israel had become a stench to the Philistines, and the people were called out to join Saul at Gilgal. Okay, so Saul has 2,000, his son has 1,000, so there's 3,000 troops. Verse 5. 
The Philistines mustered to fight with Israel. Okay, let's look at the numbers here. 30,000 chariots. What was the size of Israel's army? 3,000 foot soldiers. Does Israel have chariots? Israel mustered, or Philistines mustered to fight with Israel. 30,000 chariots and 6,000 horsemen troops like the sand of the seashore and multitude. 36,000 against 3,000. Almost a four to one, three and a half to four to one odds. They came up and encamped at Michmash to the east of Beth Aven. When the men of Israel saw they were in trouble, for the people were hard-pressed, the people hid themselves in caves and in holes and in rocks and in tombs and in cisterns. Anywhere you could find a place to hide, they were hiding. Let's go hide in caves. And some Hebrews crossed the fords of the Jordan to the land of Gad and Gilead. So some of them just ran away. Saul was still at Gilgal, and all the people followed with trembling. Okay. Remember last, was it last week we looked at Hezekiah or was it two weeks ago? Was it last week or two weeks ago? I'm not, not Hezekiah, Jehoshaphat. Remember Jehoshaphat says, we don't know what we're going to do. We're pressed in on all sides. It was two weeks ago. We're pressed in on all sides and um, we don't know what we're going to do, but we're going to call a, we're going to call the nation together. We're going to fast. We're going to pray. We're going to seek the face of the Lord. We don't know what we're going to do, but the Lord's going to, the Lord's going to act for us. He led the people to trust the Lord. Okay, what, does, what should have Saul done right here as people were running away? Let's find out what he does. Verse 8. He waited seven days, the time appointed by Samuel. Samuel was supposed to come back after seven days, so Samuel's gone. And Saul's freaking out. Like, if he had a watch back then, he's like, okay, seven days. Seven. Okay, we're, we're, where's Samuel? Seven days, he's not here. Verse 9. So Saul said, bring the burnt offerings here to me and the peace offerings. And he offered the burnt offering. And as soon as he had finished offering the burnt offering, behold, Samuel just happened to show up. He came. And Saul went out to meet him and greet him. And Samuel said, what have you done? And Saul said, when I saw the people were scattering from me, and that you did not come within the days appointed, and the Philistines had mustered at Michmash, I said, now the Philistines will come against me at Gilgal, and I have not sought the favor of the Lord. So I forced myself and offered the burnt offering. And Samuel said to Saul, you've done foolishly. You have not kept the command of the Lord your God with which he commanded you. For the Lord would have established your kingdom over Israel forever, but now your kingdom shall not continue. The Lord has sought out a man after his own heart, talking about David, and the Lord has commanded him to be prince over his people because you've not kept what the Lord commanded you. Now you think to yourself, what's the issue here? What's the issue here? What's the big deal? What did Saul do? Saul offered burnt offerings as a sacrifice. And you may say, well, that's... Saul basically said, I was trying to seek the favor of the Lord, so I burnt these burnt offerings. Because, Samuel, you weren't here on time. We had to speed things up. Okay, question. Who in the Old Testament alone is authorized to offer sacrifices to the Lord? A Levitical priest. Not a king. Samuel was authorized to do that. But Saul was not. 
So this is a clear example of foolish impatience. It's a lack of respect for God's written law that only priests could offer sacrifices. And it's an unwillingness to trust God in his sovereign timing. Basically, Saul said, we're in trouble. I got to get the Lord on our side. Samuel, you're not here in time. I'm going to take matters into my own hand, and I'm going to directly disobey God by offering the burnt offering. I'm going to act with impatience. And it's funny, it's, it's, it's so ironic. What would happen if Saul had just waited like a few more minutes? Do you realize what the text says? Anytime you see behold, the ESV kind of translates it behold. In Old Testament narrative, anytime you see behold sometimes, sometimes that can be translated like, wow, at just the right time, guess who just happened to show up? What does it say right there? Uh, what verse is it? Uh, verse 10. As soon as he had finished offering the burnt offering, behold, Samuel came. If he would have just waited a few more minutes, Samuel would have gotten there on time. But what did Saul do? Well, then he plays the blame game. He starts blaming. He never takes personal responsibility. What does he say? The soldiers were, get, were scattering. Samuel, you didn't come on time. The Philistines are on the move. They're, they're mustering strength. And then he, notice what he says. He says, I forced myself to do this. It's everybody else's fault but my own. So in times of rash sin, where we act rashly or presumptuously or impatiently, how many times do we blame others around us or the situation or the circumstances instead of taking ownership for our own sins and waiting upon the Lord? What was the tragic consequence for this one act of impatience? You may think, well, it's just one little act of impatience. But what did it cost Saul? Your kingdom is taken away from you. He lost his kingship. He lost his dynasty. God's going to choose David, a man after his own heart. And it's interesting that David's not even on the scene yet, but notice what, what Samuel says to him. The Lord's going to choose someone after, a man after his own heart. And now, that's kind of a dig to Saul. What is that basically saying to Saul? You're not a man after God's own heart, Saul. You're a man after your own heart. You're impatient. Okay? So, we've seen God's patience in the Old Testament. We've seen God the Father's patience towards us in the New Testament. We've seen examples of people that exemplified patience. And we saw an example of someone being impatient. Let's go to the New Testament now and let's look at Jesus. Was Jesus patient? Okay, trivia question. I know you know this one. What was the name of the one disciple that betrayed Jesus? Okay, I know you know this one. Judas. Okay. Did Jesus know all along that Judas was going to betray him? Yes. On the night, before they were, on the night of the betrayal in, in John 13, verses 1 through 5, at the feast of Passover, Jesus washes the disciples' feet. So let's, let's read this, John 13, 1 through 5. Now before the feast of Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. He loved them to the end. During supper, when the devil had already put it into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands, then he had come from God and was going back to God, rose from supper, he laid aside his outer garment, and taking a towel, tied it around his waist, 
Then he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and wipe the towel that was wrapped around them. Okay. Judas has not left yet to go betray Jesus. Does Jesus wash Judas's feet? Does Jesus have to wash Judas? It could have been like, okay, I'm going to wash Peter, I'm going to wash James, I'm going to wash John, I'm going to wash Matthew. Simon, I mean, Judas Iscariot, I'm skipping over you because you're, you're going to betray me. Jesus doesn't do that, does he? Now, it doesn't get Judas off the hook, but it's amazing that in that moment, Jesus would show patience and wash all the disciples' feet, knowing that Judas was going to betray him. Judas didn't deserve to have his feet washed by Jesus, but Jesus washed them anyway. So Jesus, even to his disciples, showed patience. Now, the ultimate example of patience that Jesus exemplified is on the cross. What did Jesus endure on the cross? Not just physical suffering in the torture of crucifixion, but the spiritual anguish of taking all of our sins and God's justice. And I want to I show you a very interesting word that Peter uses in talking about Jesus when he was dying on the cross in 1 Peter 2, 20-24. And he's talking about suffering. Peter's talking about our suffering. He says, What credit is it if when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure? But when you do good and you suffer for it, you endure. That is a gracious thing in the sight of God. Endure. When you're suffering and you're patient through suffering, it's a glorious thing in the sight of God. For to this you've been called. Okay, stop, Peter. Say what? For this you've been called. Called to what, Peter? To endure suffering. You've been called to this. Okay, any Christian want to say, wait a minute, I want to back out of the deal here. I didn't, I didn't sign up for this. The Bible says God has called us to share in suffering. And then, notice the rest of verse 21. Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example that you might follow in his steps. Okay, what was the example that Jesus gave us and how to be patient and endure suffering? Okay, Peter tells us. Verse 22. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten. But, here's what I want to focus on, he continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness by his wounds you've been healed. What did Jesus do when faced with the ultimate in suffering? Your Bible says he kept entrusting himself to the Father who would make all things right. He kept entrusting himself. Literally in the Greek text, he handed it over. It means to hand over. Jesus kept handing things over to God. Handing his life, handing over his circumstances. Everything was handed over to a sovereign God. That's what patience is, isn't it? When you hand things over to God and wait patiently for God to take care of things that you can't take care of, you hand it over. You keep entrusting. And literally, it's the same word there that, that, that 
Luke uses in Luke 23, 46, when Jesus finally dies, then Jesus calling out with a loud voice, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And having said this, he breathed his last. Ultimately, in his final breath, Jesus handed over his very life to the Father. So Jesus' patience on the cross is an example for us to be patient when we suffer. And the way Jesus kept entrusting himself to the Father, we too keep, keep handing things over to the Father. Okay, another trivia question. What was Paul's, the Apostle Paul's life like when he was Saul of Tarsus before the road to Damascus? What kind of man was he? A bad dude. Okay, he was a blasphemer. He was a Pharisee. He was a persecutor. He literally dragged people out of their homes, Christians out of their homes, to have them go be killed. He was a, whether he committed murder, he was complicit in the murder of Christians. He was an insolent opponent. Okay, 1 Timothy 1, 15 through 16. What does Paul say? The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the foremost. Paul says, I'm the worst of sinners. But I receive mercy for this reason, that in me, as the foremost, as the worst of sinners, Jesus Christ might display his what? Perfect patience. As an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. Paul says, listen, if you want to see a poster child of God's patience, look at me. I don't deserve to be saved. I was the worst of sinners. I was a persecutor. I was a murderer. If God can save me, he can save the worst of sinners. As a matter of fact, it's perfect patience that God shows. Jesus shows. Okay, so what have we seen so far tonight? God is patient. He's slow to anger. There were Old Testament people that were patient. There were Old Testament people that weren't patient. Jesus exemplified patience in washing the disciples' feet and dying on the cross and saving sinners. Now, let's get real practical tonight and talk about, okay, how do we practice patience? But before we do that, what's the opposite of patience? Okay, what's the opposite of patience? You guys tell me, and, and, I, and I'll, I'll accept your answer. Is it impatience okay what's the opposite of patience it's not a trick question it's impatience okay okay well that that helps us impatience but let me ask you a question let's get down to let's get down to the bottom of it let's ask the deeper question yes we know the opposite of patience is impatience but ultimately why do you and i get impatient I think there's three things. There's probably more, but I've listed three things here tonight that really kind of get to the root of it. One of, it, one of them is self-righteous entitlement. Why do we get impatient? Well, because I shouldn't have to wait. I deserve to be first. I'm above having to wait. I'm entitled to my way. Number two is kind of similar, egoism, being egotistical. Everything revolves around me, so others should be waiting on me. I shouldn't have to wait for others or be patient with others. People need to be patient with me. I'm the center of attention. 
And then sometimes there's some resentment that makes us impatient. When things always seem to go easier for others and things are always complicated for me, God must not be on my side. So I'm, I'm, gonna, I'm mad at the world, I'm mad at God, I'm mad at others, and I just get impatient because nothing ever works out for me and you get resentful. Okay. So if patience is a fruit of the Spirit, we first have to understand how God's been patient towards us. When we understand how patient God has been towards us through the power of the Holy Spirit, then we can begin to be patient in our lives. So I'm going to give us some practical areas tonight where we need patience. When do we need patience? 24-7, right? (laughs) Some of you are like, 24-7. Let me give you a bunch of examples tonight with some scriptures of when we need patience. There's probably more, but I just kind of went through the Bible the past couple days and just kind of thought through these scriptures and said, let me just kind of categorize some general areas where you and I need patience. Okay, so here's, here's the first. There's, there's, I don't even know how many numbers there are. The number, number one, letter A, first one. Okay, we need patience when God does not immediately answer our prayers. Does God often immediately answer our prayers? Dear God, give me, give me, give me, okay, boom, God answers it question, why doesn't God answer your prayers right away? I don't know. It's God's timing. Some people in the Old Testament were upset with God because he wasn't on their timetable, especially in the Psalms. So you're not alone. Listen to some of these Psalms. Psalm 28.1, to you, O Lord, I call my rock. Be not deaf to me, lest if you be silent to me, I become like those who go down to the pit. God, I'm calling out to you. I'm praying, don't be deaf to me. Are are you hearing me, God? I'm praying I'm not getting an answer. How long are you going to make me wait? Psalm 33, 20 through 22. Our soul waits for the Lord. He is our help and our shield. For our heart is glad in him because we trust in his holy name. Let your steadfast love, O Lord, be upon us even as we hope in you. Our soul waits for the Lord. Psalm 38, 15. But for you, O Lord, do I wait. It is you, O Lord, my God, who will answer. You'll answer, Lord, but I may have to wait for the answer. Okay, here's a, here's a hard thing. What if you've been praying? Okay, so let me tell you about a time in our life. I may get emotional, but I don't think I will because I've, I've kind of told this before. So most of you know that our, our son has special needs. And when he was 11 months old, we found out he was diagnosed with a rare chromosome disorder. Um, it's called, well, it's literally called isodicentric chromosome 15 disorder. It makes him severely autistic, developmental delays, um, nonverbal, seizures, epilepsy. And so um, when, when he was diagnosed, we ran the gamut as parents of what you, because you go into the neurologist and they, they tell you the worst of the worst. And there was only 300 known cases at the time when he was diagnosed. So this was a relatively new chromosome disorder. This was in 2001. Um, And so as parents, we didn't know really how to handle that. Um, And so for a while, I would pray for a genetic miracle. God, would you just make my son normal, was what I would pray. 
God, you can reverse the chromosomes. You can take that chromosome 15 that's inverted and duplicated, and you can put it back, and you can, you can make my son talk, and you can, you, can, you can heal my son. I'm praying for a genetic miracle. And my wife and I prayed for that until we realized that very clearly, God, that was not God's will for our son. And God said, you're not to be praying that way because I'm not going to answer that. And so there was a moment of truth where I broke down as a dad and basically fell on my knees and said, okay, this boy, Zachary, is yours, Lord. I may be his earthly father, but you are his heavenly father. Give me the strength, give Don the strength to be able to raise this son for your glory. So our prayer changed from, Lord, do a genetic miracle, to, Lord, would you be glorified through Zach no matter what happens? Now, there were some times where there was really hard, it was hard to wait on the Lord because, you know, you pray to the Lord theologically, you know he can do that. You sometimes lose hope. And sometimes what I'm, what I'm trying to say is you can pray and hope and wait for a long time patiently, and God may not answer it the way you want it. Now, did God answer our prayer? Yes. Did God, did God, give, us, did God give us an answer? Okay. Was it the answer we wanted? No. But was it His will? Yes. And did we have a peace that came through it? Yes, even though it was difficult to get through that. And then, this is a side point, and I hope I'm not offending anybody here that's listening, but some, some things were said to my wife that um, were kind of hurtful. One person said to my wife that it wasn't God's will for children to be born with disabilities. And that we must have done something wrong in our life to deserve a son this way. That we must have had some secret hidden sin and that God was punishing it. It wasn't God's will for kids to be born disabled. And we had come through this thing where God clearly said, it is, your, it, is, it is my will for your family to go through this for my glory. And so we, like, at that moment, did we believe the Lord or did we believe what this person's theology was? Now, obviously, we rejected the theology and some people are well-meaning, but I'm not saying patience is easy. I'm not saying waiting on the Lord in prayer is easy. I'm not saying God always answers the way we want him to answer, but does God answer? Yes. Does it take a while? Sometimes it's immediate. You know, God is sovereign in how he does that. Isaiah 42, 14. For a long time I've held my peace. I've kept still and restrained myself. Now I will cry out like a woman in labor. I will gasp and paint. Pant. pant. I'll gasp and paint. Women's... But, Women's paint night this Friday night, too. I guess some people paint if they, if they get upset. What's he saying here? He's like, God, I've kept it in long enough, but now I'm going to cry out to you like a woman in labor and just like unload on you, God. Okay, so the second one's kind of tied to us. The first one is we need patience when God does not immediately answer our prayers. The second one's kind of tied to it. We need patience when waiting upon God's perfect timing. Psalm 25, 5. Lead me in your truth and teach me, for you are God of my salvation. For you I wait all the day long. I wait all the day long. 
And I wait on your timing. I wait for your hand. Teach me, lead me. Psalm 27, 14. Wait for the Lord. Be strong and let your heart take courage. Wait for the Lord. Does it say how long? The other psalm said all the day long. This just says wait. Don't you like when the Bible leaves those open-ended? Just wait. How long? Wait. Okay. Psalm 33:20. Our soul waits for the Lord. He is our help and our shield. Okay? Next area, we need patience. We need patience when we get frustrated or envious of others' success and prosperity. We need patience when we get frustrated or even envious of others' success and prosperity, even when they're sinfully doing it. Psalm 37, 7. Be still before the Lord and wait patiently for him. Fret not yourselves over the one who prospers in his way, over the man who carries out evil devices. Don't fret or get anxious when somebody else succeeds or somebody gets ahead or somebody gets away with evil. It's not your problem. But how often do we fret and we get frustrated over other people's business? And what's the psalmist say? Be still and wait for him. Don't fret over somebody else's stuff. Okay, here's another area we need patience. We need patience when we do good works and don't immediately see fruit or spiritual results. Have you ever done a good deed or ministered to somebody or reached out and you never saw any fruit? Or you never got a thank you? Or you wondered, did that even make a difference? Okay, Galatians 6, 9. Let us not grow weary of doing good, for in due season we will reap if we do not give up. Due season. Does it tell us when that season is? It just says, keep ministering, keep doing it. In due season, God will take care of it. Just don't give up. What's our tendency when we don't see fruit? It's just not worth it. I'm just going to give up. Well, in due season, God may do something awesome. Hebrews 6, 10 through 12. For God is not unjust as to overlook your work, and the love that you have shown for his name in serving the saints, as you still do. And we desire each one of you to show the same earnestness to have the full assurance of hope until the end, so that you may not be sluggish, but imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. Don't be sluggish in ministering to other people. Be patient. You may not see immediate fruit. Here's the point. Would you, you may never see fruit this side of heaven. You may invest in somebody. You may love somebody. You may encourage and minister to somebody and never see any fruit on this earth. When you get to heaven, you'll see some things you never thought happened. You know the most frustrating job in the world? A pastor. I can go out and build a house and see the fruit of my labors. I can go out and dig a ditch and see the fruit of my labors. I can go out and design a space shuttle and see it launch and see the fruit of my labors. How do you measure spiritual fruit? It's hard, isn't it? And so some pastors go year after year after year ministering and they never see any fruit. And sometimes you may never know what God is doing, but at the end of the age, you'll see the full picture. 
sometimes God may keep you from seeing that fruit now so you don't get a big head. You never know. All right, here's the next one that's, I think, the most probably a difficult one. So we've been talking about circumstances pretty much, waiting on God, waiting on God's time, being patient towards God. Uh, we're, we're kind of we're ministering, we're, we're doing things, and we're not seeing fruit, we're not seeing answers. Now here comes interpersonal relationships. So we need patience in our interpersonal relationships, and I put especially within the family and within the church. I don't know about you, but who do you get the most impatient with? The people you live the closest proximity with. Okay? So Ephesians 4, 1 through 2. I therefore, as a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love. Patiently bearing with one another. What does it mean to bear with one another? Put up. Put up with others. Let me just ask, the, let me ask you a question. I'll ask it very personally. Do you personally have quirks and idiosyncrasies that frustrate other people? No, never. Ask your spouse, you know, give a quick answer right away. Or ask your kids or ask your parents. Sometimes living with other people is just downright weird. And they're going to rub you the wrong way, and they're going to do things that drive you crazy. And the question is, are you going to bear with them? Are you going to put up with it? Are you going to be patient? Colossians 3, 12 through 13. Put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another. And if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other, as the Lord has forgiven you, so you must also forgive. So again, bear with one another with patience. 1 Thessalonians 5.14, We urge you, brothers, admonish the idle, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, be patient with them all. Be patient with them all. There's going to be people in your life that are idle. What does idle mean? They're lazy and they don't kind of have to get their butt in gear. There's people that are faint-hearted, they're discouraged. There's people that are weak. And Paul, Paul says, be patient with them all. Okay, another area where we need patience. This comes to prayer. Praying not for us, but praying for others. We should pray for each other to, to have, to have pay, I forgot a word. We should pray for each other to have patience to be able to endure trials with patient joy. That doesn't sound right. My point is, pray for each other to have patience. Paul prayed for the churches, the Christians, to have patience. So we have some recorded prayers. Okay, So let's just look at a psalm here real quick. Psalm 62, 5-8. For God alone, O my soul, wait in silence, for my hope is from Him. He alone is my rock and my salvation, my fortress, I shall not be shaken on God rests my salvation and my glory, my mighty rock, my refuge is God. Trust in Him at all times. O people, pour out your heart before Him. God is a refuge for us. Wait for Him. We need others to pray for us to have patience. Okay? 
Colossians 1, 9-14. This is Paul's prayer for the Colossians. And so from the day we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you. Okay, how do we know it's a prayer? Because Paul says, we haven't ceased to pray for you. What's Paul's prayer request? Okay, he lists it. That, asking that, what are you asking, Paul? Asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding, so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work, and increasing in knowledge of God, being strengthened with all power, according to his glorious might, for all endurance and patience with joy, giving thanks to the Father who qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. He's delivered us from the dominion of darkness and transferred us into the kingdom of his beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. What's Paul praying? I want you to have power. I want you to have strength. I want you to bear fruit. I want you to walk in a manner worthy. Why? Because that's hard. I want you to have endurance and patience with joy, which is another part of the fruit of the Spirit. Can you have patience without joy? You can kind of bear up under it and just kind of, I'll just deal with it. But joyful patience. Okay, Peter. Let's go back to Peter again. 1 Peter 4, 12 through 19. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. Let's just stop right there. Why me, God? This is, why is it happening to me? What's Peter saying? When you go through something bad or you go through a trial, don't act like, it's like, don't act like you're immune to this. Don't act like something strange is happening to you. This is part of being a Christian. When a fiery trial comes upon you, don't, don't act like something strange is happening to you, but rejoice insofar as you share Christ's suffering that you may also rejoice and be glad when His glory is revealed. If you're insulted for the name of Christ, you're blessed because the Spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. But let not you, none of you suffer as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer or as a meddler. Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name. For it is time for judgment to begin at the household of God, and if it, get, if it begins with us, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel? And if righteous is scarcely saved, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. We will go through trials. And Paul says, pray for others to endure those trials with patience and with joy. Okay, so we need prayer from others. Another area where we need patience. We need patience in our progressive sanctification. We all grow at different rates. Sometimes we don't grow as fast as we would like to grow. And we may look at another Christian and think, man, they're growing a lot faster and they know more of their Bible and I just see them by leaps and bounds and here I am over here struggling with the same old things. God has us on different growth paths getting to the same place. 2 Corinthians 3.18 And we all with unveiled face beholding the glory of the Lord are being trans we're being transformed. Okay, the Holy Spirit's doing that. We're being transformed into the same image of Christ from one degree of glory to another, for this comes from the Lord whose spirit. From one degree of glory to another. Okay, so I'm just going to pick on Brent because he's a deacon and I can pick on him. Brent may not be growing as fast as Jerry. 
And so-and-so over here may not be going as fast as a person over here. It doesn't matter. The point is, it's one degree of glory to another. God has you where he wants you, and you don't need to be frustrated when you're not growing as fast as you'd like to grow. Sometimes God's maybe taking you through some things to, so that you can patiently rely upon him. Philippians 2, 12 through 13. Therefore, my beloved, as you've always obeyed, so now not only in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it's God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. God is working in you, maybe at different rates than somebody else, but don't get impatient if you see somebody else growing faster than you and you're not growing as fast as you'd like. Now, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to address pastors here next, even though you're not, you're not a pastor. Because you need to know what the Bible says about the role of a pastor when it comes to patience. So pastors, this is another area. Pastors and spiritual leaders need patience in difficult times of ministry. Let me just preface this before we start looking at some scriptures. Everywhere I turn, on podcasts, on emails, on websites, on church publications, there's never been a time in American history recently within the past 50 years that more pastors are quitting and leaving the ministry and leaving their churches and are discouraged because of COVID. Pardon my French, but COVID's kicked pastors' butts in a lot of areas of the country. Because do we open? Do we not open? Do we require masks? Do we not require masks? Do, all these issues related to how you relate to the virus have torn pastors apart. And there are more pastors leaving the ministry today in record droves because they're like, I'm not putting up with it. Okay. Thankfully, okay, hear me very clearly. God has blessed Emmanuel. We're unified. We don't have any of those problems. We have a great group of elders. We have great unity in the church. We're not seeing that. But I have friends all around the country that are struggling they're, they're dealing with issues. And so there will be difficult times in ministry. How does a pastor or a spiritual leader handle that? Well, sometimes you just have to have patience and wait upon the Lord's timing. So Paul talks about his ministry in 2 Corinthians 6, 3-7. We put no obstacle in anyone's way so that no fault may be found with our ministry. But a service of God, we commend ourselves in every way. By great endurance in afflictions, hardships, calamities, beatings, imprisonments, riots, labor, sleepless nights, hunger, by purity, knowledge, patience, kindness, the Holy Spirit, genuine love, by truthful speech and the power of God, with the weapons of righteousness for the right hand and for the left. Paul says, listen, we've been through a lot. If you go back and look at what happened to Paul, he was beaten, he was stoned, he was shipwrecked, he was hunted down, sleepless nights, all these things. And he says, listen, in my ministry, I trusted in the Holy Spirit to have patience and great endurance. Okay, we're supposed to model that. So Paul writes to Timothy and says, Timothy, what you've seen in my life, model that. 2 Timothy 3, 10 through 12. You, however, have followed my teaching, my conduct, my aim in life, my faith, my patience, my love, my steadfastness, my persecutions and my sufferings that happened to me in Antioch and Iconium and at Lystra, which persecutions I endured, yet from all of them the Lord rescued me. Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. 
Timothy, you not only followed my teaching, but you, you saw my patience in the midst of suffering. Now, there's another way a pastor has to have patience. 2 Timothy 4, 1 through 2. I charge you in the presence of Christ and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing in his kingdom, preach the word, be ready in season and out of season, reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. Why do you think pastors need patience when they're preaching and teaching a congregation? Is everybody going to get it the first time? Are there going to be people that cause problems? Are there going to be people that have issues? This pa- There's a story about a guy. And he's in bed next to his wife in the morning. He's like, I do not want to get up and go to work. I can't stand it. I can't stand the people. It's terrible. I don't want to go. It drives me crazy. This is the worst job ever, honey. Let me just stay here and lay in bed. And she turns to him and says, Honey, it's Sunday morning. You're the pastor. You've got to get up and go to church. Now, that's not me, but some pastors have that. Like, I've heard pastors say this. I would love being a pastor if it weren't for the people. Actually, some megachurch pastors, one pastor in particular, and he actually got, um, there's, and I'll mention his name because it's public knowledge, Mark Driscoll. Mark Driscoll was a megachurch pastor. He, he was like the top of the charts. He had like these huge churches all over the country. Um, he actually got fired by his church. Um, but he had, a, he had an exit off the stage in a secret hallway that went back to a green room. So after he preached, he never had to interact with anybody in the congregation. He would just stand up and preach, and he'd go back and hang out in his green room. He would never interact with the people in the congregation. Some pastors just want to stand up and talk to the people, but they never want to get down and be with the people. And being a pastor requires patience in your preaching and teaching. Okay, enough about pastors. You guys don't want to hear that. All right, and then the last thing here. Man, I I spent almost the whole time talking about patience. Wow. We need patience. We need patience in waiting for the second coming. Do we know when Jesus is going to come back? Well, we know it's one day closer than it was yesterday. Psalm 52, 8 through 9. But I am like a green olive tree in the house of God. I trust in the steadfast love of God forever and ever. I will thank you forever because you've done it. I will wait for your name, for it is good in the presence of the godly. I'll wait for your name. I'll wait for your return. Romans 8, 22 through 25. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit, we groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we are saved. Now hope is now, hope that is seen is not hope, for who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. We're in bodies that are decaying. We live in a fallen world. What are we waiting for? We're waiting for the day where Jesus comes back and we receive our new bodies. 
and we wait for that day with patience. All right, Psalm 130, and then we may not have time for questions. Let me just read Psalm 130 real quick. Well, just 5 and 6, I probably could have just put that on the screen, but Psalm 135 and 6. I wait for the Lord, my soul waits, and in his word I hope. My soul waits for the Lord more than the watchman for the morning, more than for the watchman in the morning. I wait for the Lord in his word, I hope. I want you to see that when you wait patiently, you're waiting in his word. His word is what gives you encouragement while you wait in him. And then Lamentations 3, 25 through 26, the Lord is good to those who wait for him. To the soul who seeks him, it is good that one should wait quietly for the salvation of the Lord. It's amazing how many times the Bible tells us to wait. Wait on the Lord. What's the last thing we like to do? Wait. All right. Well, let's pray, and then we'll be good to go. Father, thank you for this time tonight. I pray that you would, um, Lord, just grant us patience. Thank you, Father, for how patient you've been with us. You have shown us extreme patience. You're slow to anger. You're abounding in steadfast love. You showed Israel patience. And Jesus, you were patient, perfect patience, by dying on the cross for us. And so we do not want to be patient. We get impatient. We get entitled. We get selfish. We, we don't want to wait we want immediate results. We get frustrated. We, we fret. We get anxious. Holy Spirit, please grant us patience with each other in circumstances in all things. Help us to wait quietly for you. Help us to wait patiently. As the Bible says, it's good to wait quietly for the Lord. Help us to wait on your timing and wait on your sovereignty. Help us to be a people that wait upon the Lord. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.